there's almost no example in medicine or health where the same thing helps everybody. Subjective quality of life, subjective health is one of the best predictors of long-term health. How do I feel, right? And so just asking yourself that question over time as you make changes, being mindful of, you know, how is my body responding, I think is going to get you a good chunk of the way. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. This week's guest is someone who I really, really respect. Dr. Tommy Wood has a biochemistry degree from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He's currently a research assistant professor at the University of Washington, and he conducts ongoing research focusing on ways to increase resilience and treat injury in the developing brain. Now, what I love about Tommy is that not only is his knowledge and education second to none, he's also got an incredible range of experience across a variety of different disciplines, which gives him a really broad perspective and an ability to see the big picture. You see, alongside his career in medicine and research, Tommy has invested a lot of time in developing easily accessible methods with which to track human health, performance, and longevity. He's published multiple scientific papers and lectured all over the world about the root causes of multiple sclerosis and insulin resistance. Now, Tommy's goal, much like my own, is to cut through the mixed health messages that were given in the media, by healthcare professionals, and even from scientific studies. His objective is to shine a light on the best way for people to approach these conflicting issues and to help find ways to practically implement them in our daily lives. In our conversation, we cover a variety of different topics that I think you are going to find really, really interesting. We start off talking about fitness and endurance sports and how being fit might not be as healthy as you think. We also touch upon Tommy's own health journey through low self-esteem and orthorexia. And we discuss how the language we use when talking about health is so, so important. We also cover the value of failure, how vital it is to keep challenging our brains as adults, and the latest thinking on the various factors that we can influence in our lives that influence the health of our brains. We finish off touching on the crucial role that emotional health and human connection plays in brain health, and the powerful idea that your brain needs a reason to be alive. It needs meaning and purpose, and we get that from interactions with other people. I think one of the most empowering things to come out of this conversation is that the changes you need to make to improve your health and well-being are much smaller than you think. I really enjoyed having this conversation. I really hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, just a quick shout out to one of the brands who is supporting today's show. Vivo Barefoot is on a mission to make perfect footwear, perfect for feet, human movement, and planetary health. Now, if you've been following my work for a while, you will know that I have been wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes exclusively for many years now. I think it's about eight years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have transformed my life and that of many of my friends, as well as many of my patients. 
I continually get reports back that people are improving their hip pain, their knee pain, their back pain, as well as their general mobility. And there's more and more research coming out to support this. Recently, the University of Liverpool published a study showing that after six months of daily activity in minimal footwear like Vivo Barefoot, foot strength increased by almost 60%. That is incredible. And if I'm honest, it doesn't actually surprise me because I've seen and experienced the benefits firsthand. Now, in that study, they weren't running in minimalist shoes. They were simply just living and walking in them, which is what I always recommend if you are transitioning over from wearing cushion shoes. Only in this last week, I was hosting a barefoot roundtable, and I spoke to Dr. Irene Davis from Harvard Medical School, who was also sharing that actually, for any of us, once we start wearing cushion shoes as opposed to minimalist shoes, we start to change the way that we walk. And there's some evidence supporting that actually there's more torque going through the knee joint when you're wearing cushion shoes. So I'm a big fan of minimalist shoes like Vivo Barefoot. Vivo have got a great range of shoes for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. If you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. I tried them eight years ago and I've not gone back. I know many of you feel the same way. It is completely risk-free to give them a go because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. For listeners of my show, they offer a fantastic discount. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they're giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. You can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. And now my conversation with the incredibly knowledgeable, but also inspirational Dr. Tommy Wood. Often athletes are, you know, we say that they're, they're fit, but they're not necessarily healthy. They've kind of often crushed themselves in this attritional training and eating model that is often used, particularly in endurance sports. And then how do you unpick some of that and, and, and make it so that people can perform well you know, long into later life, that was something that we're doing. So, I, so alongside my sort of formal academic career, which is largely based in neonatal neuroscience. So I research ways to uh, heal the injured newborn brain. Well, I, you know, it's my day job is what I spend most of my time doing. There's been this kind of, you know, working with these other diverse populations and trying to really understand how their environment uh, contributes to, to health or any kind of disease that they might have. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Tommy. And you mentioned something there that was, was really interesting. These people can be fit, but not healthy. Now, to most people listening, I would imagine there's a bit of a clash there. What do you mean they can be fit and not healthy? Because I think in society, the prevailing narrative is that the fitter you become, the healthier you become. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yes, I think from a general population standpoint, there's, there's, there's almost a linear relationship between how fit you are and how healthy you are. And that means that anybody, regardless of their current fitness levels, can probably, again, in the average population, improve that somewhat and, and have you know, some kind of overall health benefit. However, when you're at the pointy edge of the spear, you have to start making sacrifices for, of, for your health 
in order to get some kind of increase in performance. And that may be because you're targeting a very specific adaptation. Um, you know, if you took a, a Tour de France cyclist, I mean, they're essentially this incredible cardiovascular system on, on little legs. But if you ask them to jump onto a high wall, they wouldn't be able to do it. They don't have like the muscle fibers and the structure to be able to do it. Um, and when you think about what you might want to do long term to protect your health as you get older, one of the most important things is being able to stop yourself from falling over. And that requires a certain type of what we call fast twitch muscle fibers, which you can lose with a huge amount of endurance exercise. So in the long term, while these people are incredibly fit, they may not have the best overall muscle structure uh, and strengths to then be able to you know, keep themselves from, say, falling over in 40 years' time. And of course, there's plenty of time in between those two periods for that to change. But there are lots of things that we need in order to be fit and healthy and just you know, work well in our environment. And in terms of strength or cardiovascular fitness, it's not that much. We do need some, absolutely, but it's not necessarily as much or we don't have to work as hard as some people tell us or you have made us believe that we have to, right? You, to, to, to be fit, you don't have to go and run for an hour a day, for instance, far from it. Um, and, but you, you do need enough. And if you have enough, then there's a huge amount of health benefit that comes from that. But if you really try and chase a certain adaptation, a certain performance in a given sport, um, more likely than, than not, you're going to have to sacrifice somewhere else, uh, which, which may then be detrimental long-term. Yeah. Really, really interesting. And, um, it's, it's something I've been thinking about actually, because I am currently on paper down to do the London marathon in October of this year. Um, now long story, how that started. It was a, it was a dare from Chris Evans on the online radio <laughs> last January, <laughs> uh, which I said yes to. And at that point there was, I think 12 or 13 weeks to go. Then the pandemic happens, things getting postponed. And, you know, as things stand, it's meant to happen in October. Now I have a an amazing running coach who frankly saying running coach is really underserving what she does but she's really big on recovery and as you know when I go into sort of intense weeks and I I try and experiment with certain things I'm really looking at my whole load in my life and going okay if I'm going to do that I can't just keep killing it at everything else as well you know I've got to make sure that I'm balancing things so I'm really I think maybe this comes with age and maybe this is because I'm, you know, a father now and I've got other responsibilities, but I really feel that actually I've got to be very careful about how much I take on here and what I can actually balance because recovery, rest, recuperation, my cognitive capacity for my job, all those things are sort of vying for that same amount of energy, right? Yeah, I I think... There's, there's a number of, of things that, that come out of that. And it's important to remember that um, one, of the, one of the most important things that I've, that I've really focused on recently is that humans are far stronger and more resilient than sometimes we give ourselves credit for. Um, and, and often we talk, about, um, we talk about things that affect our health or can affect our health with this very negative language, which I think has a significant effect on our physiology because of the way that our brains affect our bodies. Um, and, and part of that, the reason why I bring this up now is because some stress, and I mean stresses in anything that sort of like directly causes a change in our physiology, is, is really important for us. It's how we adapt. It's how we get stronger. 
Uh, it's, it's how that we sort of um, create fitness to, to survive. But at some point, all of those things start to come together and they can create too much of what, what some people might call an allostatic load, like how much total stress is being put into the system. And it can come from all these different places. It can come from the amount that you're sleeping, how well you're eating, the amount of exercise you're doing, um, you know, psychological stresses because, um, you know, you've got to go to you've got to go to work and you've got to balance your patient load and then you've got to record your two hours for radio two um and then you've got to think about getting up early to go to go and do your marathon training and all of this ha has an effect so so some small pieces of these of these stresses as i would call them um are, are really important but you know overall you do have to balance them and then give yourself time to recover and again if, you, if we take the the example of an athlete you don't get stronger through training you get stronger through recovery um and so continuously beating yourself down in any of those spheres without any uh, ability to um, adapt or consolidate or recover then essentially just results in in sort of a long-term detriment yeah yeah i love that and, and helen who's sort of um i went to because i was you know having having some issues with my right hamstring and she she very holistically looks at the whole body biomechanics but also you know emotional load and how you think about running and she like you I think also very much we, we are strong we are much more capable than we often give ourselves credit for and she has this uh, sort of she does these little three week builds and one week rest weeks but she doesn't call them rest she says those one weeks where you're not actually running and you're walking that is training. That is your body recovering and building and getting stronger. And she's really hammering that home to me. I think, to, to be fair, I sort of get that concept. Uh, but she says most of the athletes she works with have real difficulty acknowledging that a week of, of maybe taking it lighter is also going to have a benefit. Is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it reminds me of when... So my, my first year as a junior doctor, I worked in orthopedics in foot and ankle. Um, and one of the consultants, I remember, uh, said that, so, so, so runners, it's very common for runners to get stress fractures in their metatarsals, in the, in the bones, in their feet. And he made the comment that only amateurs get stress fractures because they always want to push themselves. They never want to recover. They never auto-regulate. They never listen to their body. They, they just think, I need to go out and I need to train really hard because then I'm going to get really fit and then that's going to give me my fast you know, 5K time or 10K time. Whereas most professional athletes, when your body is what pays the bills, you have to uh, you really focus on recovery and making sure that you're getting stronger and you're not overdoing it. Um, and I think, you know, the majority of the athletes that I've worked with are just passionate amateurs, um, even though I have worked with some 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 professionals in, in different sports. Um, but but those those people um, they tend to always want uh, to work really hard, um, and you know we, we can go into various reasons why why that might be. But but it, eventually it starts it starts to sort of come apart, and it can affect all kinds of things. Like it can affect relationships and your work because you're constantly trying to fit in 20 hours of training a week yeah. or racing an Ironman every two or three two or three months and the travel and time involved in that and so that's actually one of the most important things again I remember seeing an intake form for an Ironman triathlete for, for, uh, for this coaching service that I was I was running 
And looking at the training load and looking at the racing load, like the first thing that I thought was, all this is going to result in is divorce because like no, uh, it's just not sustainable from a relationship standpoint. So, so, so all of the, uh, your, your body can, can obviously suffer, but, but then so can all these other areas. If, if, if you don't, you know, uh, provide time for sort of relaxation and recovery and, and all these other things that are also very important. Yeah. It's interesting how I'm thinking about this because, Last January, at the, right at the start of January in 2020, when, when Chris asked me, I said yes. And that was kind of like the old Rongan from like uni, like he'll always say yes, you know, whatever challenge you give me, I, I will do it. And I was thinking, oh man, that's in 12 weeks. I'm not a runner. Like that's a mm. long distance to do. And, you know, I would have done it. I know I, I could have done it and I would have pushed myself to do it, but I think it would have come at a cost. Now, mm. because of circumstances, that never happened. And it, it really helped me though, because now I've really processed what it is about that that I liked. I like the thought of doing a marathon. But now I've, I've got really clear in my goals, Tommy, for me, it's about having fun, right? It's about enjoying the process of training. It's about mm. it not breaking me. So I have no desire for a particular time. My goal is to be able to function in my life as a doctor, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a health communicator, to enjoy the process and not to break myself doing it. And I believe it's possible, but I believe it's possible if you have clarity into what your goal is rather than trying to excel and get better at every single component of your life because that may work in your 20s but maybe now that I'm in my early 40s maybe that's not going to work so well yeah I mean I, I certainly appreciate the uh the the need for a challenge um and I think uh, again I think that's it's, it's important it's um it's a new skill it's uh a new like process of, of of bringing of bringing things in. It's a it's a new exposure um, for the body, which you know ha has a huge amount of benefit. Um, and I have done my fair share of ri ridiculous sporting events, essentially for for, for the same reason. Um, and although when I was younger and, and probably mixed with a small amount of of self loathing in there, um, and but what's interesting to me now sort of looking back on all of that is how sort of the marathon has become the pinnacle of challenges for for, for humans and maybe like the tri like the triathlon was kind of in there a little bit but it's, it's really the marathon um and now you know if i think about what is it that i want to be good at um physically as i get older I would have much more right. Some cardiovascular fitness is incredibly important, like like we talked about. Um, but I, but but I think physical strength is is really undervalued, and probably because, you know, we think about you know these incredible feats of endurance performance like the marathon. But as soon as you think about being strong, you you see you you imagine seeing people who are incredibly big and bulky, and maybe you think about you know taking steroids to achieve that. And and again, it, it doesn't require much, but there's a huge amount of benefit, and you know not just preventing you from falling and breaking your hip. Um, you know, being able to do all your your daily activities well into your 80s, 90s, 100 plus is going to require some kind of physical strength. So so that's where I focused my attention later in life. But I did you know I I spent 
15, 20 years, incredibly focused on endurance performance first, um, and then kind of just sort of switched into something that I think is is going to be more, um, I guess, sort of all round beneficial longer term. And and I'm not built like a marathon runner. And um, let's be honest, you're not really either. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and so so I, I certainly appreciate the challenge. But 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 I think, um, yeah, yeah, longer term, I, I focused more on on gentler aerobic stuff and then and, and then strength, because I think that that's what's going to take me further into the future. Yeah, I think you've, you've raised a great point there. And um, I'm doing it because it's trying something new. I would like to have completed that. I'm very lucky to have a place in the London Marathon. So I think, you know, I'd love to do that. So it would just be a nice personal challenge. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm under no illusion that that's necessarily going to be helping me with my longevity. <laughs> now, now, there's, there's quite a few things going on there, Tommy. And, and it's sort of it's a nice way to move into the the main topic I really want to talk to you today about, which is our brain health. Mm. You got a lot of experience. You're doing a lot of research in neonatal brain health. Um, and so there's a couple of things we've already touched on in terms of, you know, strength. Um, we, you've touched on a challenge and trying something new. And these are all things that can actually feed into how healthy our brain is. So, I thought we could start off with this line that I've heard you say on a talk on YouTube, which is long-term brain health can be inexpensive and simple to achieve. And I wonder if you could expand on what you mean by that. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely true. And this forms essentially the the foundation of my current and and hopefully future career. And when I think about uh, building a healthy brain, that's essentially what happens when when you're you're a baby, both uh, in the womb and, and and then afterwards for you know two or three decades potentially. Then I think, well, how you know? So what is it? What do you need to make a healthy brain in the first place? And then what do you need in order to keep it healthy? And and those things are often very similar. They are essentially the the, the same thing. And there's always going to be a huge amount of interest in in terms of how do we maintain cognitive function late into life because age-related dementia and age-related cognitive decline are now the leading cause of death some people call it alzheimer's disease but there's uh alzheimer's disease is as it was originally described as probably a genetic early onset alzheimer's disease you might a familial alzheimer's disease whereas what most people have is this late onset alzheimer's disease which may actually not be the same thing and and in my mind it's a continuous um onslaught um of the of the brain from the environment um and then a lack of protective factors and a lack of protective inputs so if you think about things that are protective and beneficial for for the brain so so we we've, we've talked about exercise um i think the first time so first in in rodents and then in humans the first time we saw that we can actually increase the size of an important area of the brain later in life uh was the hippocampus so the hippocampus is an area of the brain that's very important in memory it's definitely uh effect, or significantly affected in people with dementia uh, or cognitive decline alzheimer's disease and in an, an uh, an older population, I think they were in their 60s. They had them just brisk do brisk walking three times a week for a year. I think it was 45 minutes. 
And there was a control group who did some stretching for the same period of time. And in the brisk walking group, and again, when I, when I talk about cardiovascular exercise, aerobic exercise, that's what I mean. I mean, going for a brisk walk, like it doesn't need to be more intense than that. But that group saw an increase in the size of their hippocampus, which would normally decrease in size with age. And it was the first time that we ever saw in humans, in adult humans, older adult humans, that an area of the brain could increase in size. And so exercise is incredibly important. Um, again, resistance training has similar effects, but seems to affect more um, the, white, the white matter, which is the part of the brain that's really um, there for fast connection, sort of connecting all the different parts of the brain and sending signals. And, and so, so both aspects, as we might separate them out, aerobic and strength, um, are, are important for the brain. And then the, the, the challenge aspects, which we talk about, I think this is one of the probably the uh, most, um, I guess, forgotten important part of what it takes to make and keep a healthy brain. Um, and again, let's, let's use uh, an athlete analogy, which is that if you stop training or for some reason you become immobilized, um, your muscles and, and you have a good amount of muscle, you're an athlete, right? Or you say break your leg and it goes in a cast. When you take that cast off, you'll see the leg on that size is smaller. You've lost muscle mass on that size. So anytime you stop um, sort of giving an input, a stimulus to the muscles, they will reduce in size because it's energetically expensive. If you don't need them, your body isn't going to keep it, isn't going to keep it around. And everything, all the evidence that exists today suggests that your, the brain is the same, right? Use it or lose it. And when we think about using the brain, um, again, I, I like to compare back to what it takes to create and build a brain in the first place. So as an infant, you are doing things like learning to talk, learning social interaction, social cues, um, learning to control this fabulously complicated meat suit with incredible dexterity. And those things take a huge amount of, of neurological uh, stimulus, input, and effort. Then throughout life, um, you, may, you start to do things that you may think are hard, but compared to that, really not that hard. Like biochemistry as an undergrad or learning to drive a car um, or you know the, the the ins and outs of your job right they feel hard but in terms of the stimulus and the 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 effort required from your nervous system it's actually quite small compared to say how, learning how to control your whole body and as we get older we just do the same things again and again they get easier for us they just become habits they become patterns which don't require again, any significant cognitive input. And because of that, you're essentially telling your brain, hey, I don't need you to be as complex as you once were because we're not doing anything difficult. Um, and you see multiple different strands that, that, that kind of um, come into this. So uh, people have probably heard about the knowledge, right? London cab drivers, you know, less so now if, if, uh, if, if Uber's continues to be allowed to exist. But uh, to be a, a, a black cab driver in London, you had to learn the knowledge originally, which is um, all of the streets in a six mile radius of Charing Cross. And they once looked at brain scans of people taking the knowledge or learning it before and after. And those who passed 
and and again we don't know why they passed whether it was because they were the ones who actually studied or you know they have some other some other skills that allowed them to be able to gain the knowledge those who passed again saw an increase in size in certain aspects of the brain on a brain scan and those who didn't pass the knowledge didn't become cabalarvas didn't so you've you've created this incredibly difficult stimulus which is then you know helped uh, improve the brain um, and you see something similar in terms of people who retire earlier tend to die earlier as well and that's after you're adjusting for all the things that might cause you to retire earlier such as medical conditions so again like telling the body telling the brain that it's required um it, it is incredibly powerful for, for brain health and you know we could go on so if you look at the brain if you look at the brain health or the brain age of musicians Amateur musicians have a better brain age than professional musicians because amateur musicians, it's harder for them, right? They have to work harder to get um, a, a nice result. So, so all of this is basically telling me that in order to keep your brain healthy, you need to tell, tell your brain that it's needed. That requires you to do difficult things, which is going to also require you to be bad at stuff yeah. as you learn new skills. Um, and then once you once you've acquired a new skill, you then have to move on to something else. I mean, still do the thing if you enjoy it. But then, if as soon as something becomes habit, becomes patterned, becomes easy, it's no longer the same stimulus. So this could be anything. It could be dancing. It could be some kind of movement or sport. It could be singing. Um, teaching others uh, seems to be uh, pr a protective as well. Uh, knitting. Um, I recently started to learn how to code on, on my computer because, you know, that was something that's beneficial for my job, but also incredibly difficult. I'd never done anything like it before. So there are all these things that you can do, uh, but you need some kind of ongoing stimulus uh, to, to tell your brain that it, that's still needed, it's still worth keeping around. Um, and, and that's something that, that you'll, you'll essentially need for as, for as long as you want your brain to, to still be working. I mean, it's so fascinating what you mentioned about the the leg that goes in a cast and six weeks later, muscle mass has, has declined. This whole idea that our brain is constantly responding to the inputs that we get. And if, mm -hmm. you know, if we think it's not required, it's like, I'm not going to waste energy shoving it out. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on something else. But it made me think about something Professor Laurie Santos said to me recently on the podcast. She's from Yale. She's a psychology professor and has got this globally successful course called The Science of Wellbeing. And she talks a lot about how our brains kid us often in terms of the things that are going to make us happy are not the sort of things that our brain think is going to make us happy. So we actually behave in a way that actually isn't moving us towards happiness. And, and as you were talking there, it made me think that it's interesting that society... Um, you know, the way we live now, you know, where, you know, everything's front loaded as kids, and then we sort of just gradually decline. Once we start working, we don't have time anymore to try new things. It's just pay the mortgage, get to work, take the kids to their classes. And then you just, you know, people are waiting for retirement to just chillax. And it, and it sort of, it reminds me a little bit of that where, you know, as we older also, we, we get, we get quite shy we don't we don't want to suck at something we don't want to fail at something so we don't do it but what you're saying tommy is that actually that's exactly what we need to be doing we need to be doing things that remind us that hey you are needed my brain is needed you need to grow you need to respond so yeah i mean do you feel we're, we're sort of fighting human nature or certainly the way society is set up in an effort to improve our brain health y yeah Absolutely, the the way um, society is is set up is is to sort of 
funnel you continuously in one direction and then you know be be very good at whatever it is that you do but it doesn't require again it sort of becomes you know just part of the same thing again and again doesn't require the same the same inputs and i think there's a huge amount of benefit from um you know being a bit of a jack of all trades you know having lots of having lots of interests like diversifying your interests and your expertise and your skills and that creates some buffer in terms of you know hey you, you may not always have that job or you may not always be able to do that job you know you know having some kind of broader you know base of of skills or things that you enjoy uh, again creates some some kind of buffers in there um but equally as as we get older we're expected to get more serious uh, another thing that i didn't mention which is incredibly important and uh very well um emphasized and advertised by our mutual friend daryl edwards is play yeah. adults aren't supposed to play we're supposed to be serious we're not supposed to have fun um and and again it, it sort of it become you know our our exercise our movement is supposed to be very prescribed it's going to be on a treadmill or you're going to do x reps in the gym or whatever and again that's just not how we're des- how we you know quote unquote designed to move like we're supposed to be interacting with our environment interacting with other people animals nature you know that's why our bodies are, are, are built and structured the way that they are um but yeah everything that that is required of us in in modern day society is sort of pulling us away uh from those those stimuli those inputs that that our body i think expects um and, and then is what creates a foundation for, for long-term health yeah and that um there's a brilliant talk that you did on brain health that's on YouTube, and I'll definitely link to that in the uh, the show notes for, for this podcast. You put up a graph towards the end, and I think you, it's something about the amount of cognitive capacity it requires to do certain things. And, and you know, at one end was learning to walk, I think. At the other end was, you know, retirement and, and doing Sudoku. And it was, <laughs> the contrast was really quite stark. Yeah, and you know, I, I uh, so I borrowed that graph. I remade it. It's made by a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Josh Turkney, who's a neurologist uh, over here in, in the US. And you know, it's, it's a, a lot of those ideas about sort of this the requirement of of uh, long term uh, stimulus to to keep our brains healthy is certainly something that, that I've discussed a lot with him and, and, and gotten from him. And yeah, I mean, you, it's very difficult to quantify these things, right? Like, how could you possibly quantify? the amount of effort that it takes to learn how to control the human body, except for if you, you know, think about people, you know, adults who have to relearn how to walk, or if you're trying to build a robot that's, that's, that knows how to walk, right? These are incredibly complex tasks that we haven't even necessarily been able to figure out yet, right? Because it's that difficult. But most of the other things that we require of our brains can probably, you know, as adults can probably be automated uh, to, to some degree, because it's actually not that difficult. So, so yeah, if, if if you think about what's re- what you what you ask of your body and your brain, it it just it's just a steady decline throughout life, um, and that requires now some kind of um, significant effort on our part to 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 prevent that. So in practical terms, for people, that could be anything, right? That could be what learning a language, learning an instrument. Um, mm. I don't know doing some balance work, you know, anything, I guess, where you're being challenged is going to have a positive impact on your current brain health, but also 
I guess, make you more resilient for that sort of brain decline that we might see as we get older? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing is it can be, you know, almost anything that you and I say you enjoy, but it's probably if it's difficult, you're probably not going to enjoy it to begin with, right? This is what we talked about. We don't like being bad at things. And we're, ta- you know, and we're sort of taught to feel like it's not good to be good at something. Whereas actually, if you think about kids, they will just try stuff and they'll be bad at it and they'll fall over and they'll try it again and again and they'll get better over time. And that's, again, something that we need to um, reacquaint ourselves with. Um, but then, you know, it, you know it, it can and should be something that you enjoy doing um, and that you can use so you'd learn a language and then one day we'll be able to travel again and you can go and put it into practice but it doesn't need to be a language it could be anything any of the things you mentioned um and it you know could be you know knitting or or whatever L- literally anything that requires you to learn a new skill and that you enjoy but again as soon as you get good at it you have to then start thinking you know what what can i do next that, that sort of keeps the challenge going yeah there's this kind of conflict between mastery and and super specialism mm-hmm. with that kind of just general broad all-round knowledge as you say jack of all trades and uh you train as a medical doctor um i i i really do feel that of course specialism is important in medicine mm. but i think we really have undervalued the role of the generalist f- for many years and although not directly related to brain health i can't help but see some similarities in terms of what you're talking about and how we kind of need that overview. You know, I, I feel in medicine, Tommy, that now we need generalism more than ever. We've got all these complex problems that are are coming across multiple systems in the body. And we can't just be focused on one organ. We have to be able to put everything together. Yeah, I I agree, right? And when you think about people's health, I think the more that we learn, the more we realize how complex it is, how many different uh, inputs, environmental factors are contributing to this disease or these symptoms in an individual patient. And if you're very hyper-focused on one system or one disease process, you're going to miss out um, on all the the factors that are you know, sort of coming together um, in this individual. So, so I think having a really you know broad base and open mind uh, is really important when you're when you're then trying to um, because when you're then trying to improve the health of a patient because like the, the people can come in with the same the same disease, um, the same concern, the same symptoms, and they could be vastly different. Uh, underlying yeah. uh, reasons, environmental, environmental, so- sociological, socioeconomic factors that, that could be contributing. Uh, and you really need to be able to appreciate all of those to get the best outcome. Well, I think that sort of approach applies to us looking after our own health as well, doesn't it? Instead of a laser-like focus on just one area, and you know, we've both been in the nutrition space for quite a number of years, and there can be a real focus on nutrition and of course that's important Mm. but there was I think for a period of time a neglect of uh, the importance of stress management the importance of sleep and those things are starting to change and if we if we sort of think about brain health and how you think about it with your expertise you mentioned some of the components of movement that can be really important. And, and I mean, before we move on from movements, just to just to be really clear for people, 
you were saying in that trial, I think, that it was 40 minutes of walking, of brisk walking three times a week changed the size of your hippocampus, you know, one of the memory centers in the brain. Mm. That's not that much, is it? No, no, absolutely not. And again, I think um, it comes it comes from the, the, the way I believe society has sort of created this image of exercise where, again, the pinnacle is the marathon. Um, and then to be fit requires this huge volume of running so that you could even survive a marathon. Um, but when we look at, you know, this is, the, you know, in terms of the brain, but also in terms of just uh, overall mortality risk, you know, how long you live a healthy life, health span, you get to a point where you, you reach diminishing returns, you might call it. So if you do a load more, you're not going to get that much more benefit. And that point is something like 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity every day. Um, and when I say moderate to vigorous, I mean a brisk walk. 30 minutes of brisk walking a day is going to get you the vast majority of the way um, in terms of exercise that's required to see long-term health benefit. And if you do a load more, you, you, you're not going to see that much more. So it's really not that much. Yeah, it's not that much. And I I really think this is a this is a point that's worth hammering home. Yeah, if we move on to nutrition, Tommy, in terms of what kind of things we should be eating to build a healthy brain, I'd be, I'd be interested in your view there. And also, I wonder if you could touch upon why a healthy brain is important because it's yeah we want to build a healthy brain and then often we think about the other extreme which is oh, when our brain doesn't work when we're 70 or it doesn't work as well but we forget that there's this long latent period where our brain function can start to decline before we even get symptoms so just a couple of things there which i wonder if you could just sort of expand upon yeah sure so so actually before we um get into that you mentioned earlier about this hyper-focus on, on nutrition in terms of what's essential for, for long-term health. Um, and, and when I think about the things that a healthy body, a healthy brain requires long-term, right? So nutrition is important, um, but so is sleep or circadian rhythm, right? Light when it's light, dark when it's dark, movement, um, some kind of stress mitigation, and then social connection. Probably those are the things that I think are going to underpin most of the stuff. You know, those are the biggest rocks that you know that you can move to to improve long term health. Uh, and I think that the more you neglect any one of those areas, the more you have to become hyper focused in another. So when people are talking about restricting, restricting, restricting from a dietary sense, and that could be total calories, it could be fat, it could be carbohydrates, it could be protein. All of them have been vilified. Um, by different groups for for essentially the same reasons. Um, I think that the reason why we had to become so hyper-focused and so restrictive to a large degree, um, and actually any one of those approaches can have ha can have benefit depending on the person in front of you, um, is because we are neglecting the other things. We're neglecting movement. We're neglecting sleep and, and circadian rhythm. We're neglecting social interaction, social connection. Um, and so, so that's, that's, that's one reason. It's also something that's very easy to sort of like quantify. Whereas it's hard for me to say, you know, it's easy for me to say, oh, you should stop eating carbohydrates. It's much harder for me to say, um, oh, you should go and make new friends, right? That's much harder. Um, and so I think that's one reason why we're hyper-focused. So the more you neglect the others, then you have to sort of like really 
sort of focus in on another one because those other systems are being are, are not getting the attention um, that, that they should. Um, in terms of building a healthy brain, um, I mean, the easiest way to, to think of it in my mind is, well, what is a brain made up of? Um, and it's mainly made up of fat and cholesterol. Um, and the, you know, th that in our modern nutrition environment sounds very scary. I'm, I'm not telling you that you should, that you need to eat a whole load of fat and cholesterol. Actually, your brain makes its own cholesterol, uh, the, the, and it makes it from, from precursors that could be glucose or could be ketone bodies. When you're a baby, ketone bodies are essentially the preferred precursor for making new fats, making new cholesterol. Um, and but one of the one of the things that's very important um, is DHA, the long chain omega three fatty acid that you get in seafood. And there's going to be some variation in terms of what amount people need, um, and it's probably going to be based on um, their ancestral background. So there's some evidence to suggest that people who are of a more uh, northern um, ancestry. Um, so people like me, uh, we got most of our most of our long chain of polyunsaturated fatty acids from food, from seafood. So I'm probably going to do better uh, with more, you know, direct from the source. Whereas people who live close to the equator may have gotten more sort of precursors like alpha linolenic acid, which is the omega three that you might get in nuts and seeds, and then we make our own DHA. And there's a whole ho whole host of other things um, that can influence that, but there is going to be some sort of individual variation. It's just the point that I'm trying to trying to make. But DHA is incredibly important, and it's um, accumulated very actively in the brain in the last trimester of um, of pregnancy. So the last three months or so. And it's basically being actively, uh, depending on the amount in the mother, it's being actively regulated how much is passed on to the baby. And then basically all of it is ending up um, in the brain. And then some is put in the fat stores. Um, and humans are the only primate that has significant fat stores when it's born. Uh, and that's largely because it's a repository of these important things to then support the brain. Um, and again, because babies are born with an incredibly demanding brain, human babies, um, and it's you know we need these fat stores to support it. To support it is one of the reasons that we have the brains that we do. So DHA is incredibly important. Um, lots of other things you know w will come up. So uh, things like choline can be very important. Again, you might get that from eggs, liver, uh, organ meats uh, potentially. Um, and then when I think long-term, something that is probably having a negative effect on the brain is really large swings in blood sugar. And there's, there's a lot of data to support that. You know, if you're eating foods that cause very, very big spikes in blood sugar, that's probably over time going to have a negative effect on your cognition. And there are some studies that suggest that in people with diabetes, if you improve their blood sugar control, you improve their cognitive function. And this can happen over years, you know, and, and, you, and again, we're normally told that it's like this inexorable decline over time, whereas actually we have plenty of evidence to suggest that we can reverse that as long as we improve uh, some of these factors. So, so it's just, um, I think it's very positive and empowering to say, you know, wherever you are today, there is potential for improvement if you're, you know, sort of capable and able and, 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 and you know, interested in doing that. There's a few different threads there. 
So you mentioned DHA, you mentioned that potentially your ancestry may influence what you thrive best on. So you were talking about yourself and how your ancestors probably got a lot of seafoods. And then you mentioned people who might, like my own ancestry would have been, you know, from India, sort of near the equator. And potentially we can actually make that DHA that typically you would get from seafoods. We might be able to make that from non-animal sources. Mm, yeah, It's interesting that my ancestors potentially did that. But then are they, you know, my parents emigrated to the UK. I've been born and brought up here. So my microbiome, I'm sure, has changed significantly to adapt to my new environment. So we could, there's a whole world of complexity here to try and unpick as to what someone like me should potentially do then. Is it more to suit the local environment where I live? Is it more to do with how my ancestors lived? But then I think the wider point for me is... There is this big sort of debate, isn't there? You know, DHA imports it for the brain. So typically you get that from seafood and animal products. And then people who prefer plant-based diets are saying, well, yeah, you can take ALA or we can supplement to make that. And I think the truth is that different people probably do well on different approaches, depending on all kinds of different factors. But how would you unpick your way through that? I think... Where we are currently, it's very difficult for me to say because of your ancestry, because of um, what generation of immigrant you are to your new, to your current place, um, to then say this is how you should or shouldn't eat. Um, I believe we'll get to a point where we can do that. Um, I believe very strongly that you can't use genetic testing to tell you what you should eat most of that is complete nonsense um and so this is kind of in that box so so when i'm talking about so particularly polyunsaturated fatty acids there have been studies where they look where they look at whether uh populations based on their ancestry do better with plant or animal-based sources of of PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids omega-3s and omega-6s and so in broad strokes i can tell you that people of your ancestry will probably do better or are, are more likely to thrive using plant-based sources than, than mine. But that doesn't mean that you will do better uh, on plant-based sources than I will, or vice versa. So I think a, a lot of the confusion, um, and this can come from you know, in pretty much any area in health, the, the confusion comes from conflating what can we say on a population level versus what can I recommend the individual and they are very, very regularly not, uh, you know, they are essentially mutually exclusive. I can't take anything from a population level and, and, and say this will definitely help this individual. Now, both are important because you may want to identify groups at risk for certain conditions. And then, you know, all of medicine is, is applying statistics and hoping that you're going to improve an outcome, right? So when you do a clinical trial, you see, you know, you give half the group an active drug, you give half group placebo, you generate something called the number needed to treat. How many people do you need to treat so that one will benefit? And often that number is quite high, right? So you're treating a lot of people so that one will get benefit on average, right? So, so there's almost no example in medicine or health where the same thing helps everybody, 
So so all we're doing is playing the statistics and this is just this is just unfortunately how we have to work currently. And and things will improve over time. So for for fats is I think it's very difficult. Um we'll get to a point where you know we can measure some of these things, but if I measure the omega 3s and omega 6s in your blood, it's a very very poor indicator of what's in your brain because there are transporters other mechanisms that are regulating that. Um so, I, so some people would say, well, you just measure the omega-3s in the blood. That will tell you something about the brain. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But again, these things will improve. Uh, however, one, one area where we have made some improvement is in blood sugar control. Um, and there have been some really uh, interesting studies, first from the Weissman Institute in Israel, then um, Tim Spector's group uh, in London have done some, some similar work. And basically looking at, uh, based on an individual food, a person you know, when they're eating it what what the uh um sort of the context of that food is have they exercised recently is it breakfast is it lunch is it dinner um their genetics their microbiota um all these you know their their metabolic health in general uh you know what their fasting blood sugar is then there's a huge amount of variability in how in how different people respond to the same food so if i eat a banana i'll have a very different blood sugar response to to when you eat a banana and all of those factors are, are going to play a role there. So I think we can, to a certain extent, um, that we're, we're starting to get to a point where we'd hope to be able to predict it, right? So maybe I can measure some things in you and then I'll say, well, this is how you're going to respond to banana. This is how you're going to respond to pasta. This is how you'll respond to a cookie. Um, but um, we can also do it ourselves to a certain extent. Um, so we can, you know, there's, there's increasing... Uh, interest in continuous blood sugar monitoring or just testing your blood sugar after meals, see how you respond. Um, and again, this is this is kind of, this is not something that I'm, I'm not saying everybody needs to do it. I'm just saying this is probably the area where we're the closest to being able to understand per, like inter-individual variability. And even then, it's quite uh, an intensive process. And that's just with blood sugar. So then when you think about all the different fats, all the different micronutrients, protein carbohydrates um you know we're we're really miles away from being able to understand how one person should should eat for their for their uh individual health so then it really comes down to um personal preference to a large extent and then some kind of iterative process whereby you know maybe you measure maybe you do some blood tests or maybe you just like how do i feel right subjective quality of life subjective health is one of the best predictors of long-term health um and and so we at the moment we just have to be be guided by some of that because the rest you know people are working on it but it's incredibly complex and we're not there yet yeah i mean that question how do i feel so so powerful but just hardly ever spoken about it's about you know, like I say, for on this podcast, this is about helping people become the architects of their own health, which is mm. the place I want to put them into where they feel, yeah, I can, I can absorb this information from the experts or from, you know, people who've got experience in a certain area, but then I can start to put it through my own filter and go, well, does this work for me? Does it work in the way I live my life with my family, with my work patterns? Um, you know, and, and I think, I think we've forgotten a bit of that I don't know, that autonomy, that sort of sovereignty that actually sometimes we know what's best for our bodies and not somebody else. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think there has to be more humility in people who talk about any given approach to improve health. 
because if you actually go out in the real world and apply it, you're going to see it fail yeah. a lot. Um, and again, that's not, I, I don't think that's a depressing message. I think it's just a reminder that humans are incredibly complex. Um, and we, we essentially are the species that we are because we can thrive in almost any environment, yeah. right? There is no other, um, you know, multicellular organism that can thrive in the variety of environments and with the variety of exposures that we can. And so all of those things are going to change what is going to be best for an individual. So it, when you when you see any given approach fail, you then have to step back and say, well, hey, well, this is a useful tool. It's going to work for some people. Um, or, you know, this, this, is, this is a useful tool for some people, but it didn't work for me. And that's fine, right? There's no arguments to be made there. Um, and like, like you said, the question, like, how do I feel? How does my, you know, how do I view my health? Even, you know, 30 years ago, a question of somebody's subjective health, how do you rate your health, was one of the best predictors of longevity and mortality right, on a scale of one to four, you know, very good, good, um, not very good or poor, something like that, and, you know, and, and so just asking yourself that question over time, as you make changes, being mindful of, you know, how is my body responding? Am I moodier? You know, do I feel less good when I go for my walk? Uh, do I feel less able to concentrate? Um, you know, these can can be really good indicators. Um, but again, becoming really hyper-focused on something does have its detriments. But looking inwards and just, you know, checking in on yourself, how do I feel after I've made this change? Is it, you know, positive or negative? I think is going to get you a, a good chunk of the way. Yeah. Just taking a quick break from the conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors. Now, as we're finding out from Tommy, nutrition plays a key role in the health of our brains. Good nutrition literally provides the brain with its building blocks. But it's not just about our brains. You see, good nutrition plays a key role in physical health, mental health, and emotional health. And of course, in an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But the truth is, as I have seen time and time again, many of us struggle to consistently do that. And that is why I am a huge fan of high quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across, and it contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, and I myself take it regularly. For me, it feels really good to know that each morning I've done something to prioritize my own health and well-being. And if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of my show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a new special offer where you get 10 free travel packs with your subscription. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, as well as nutrition, another key factor for our brain health is our sleep. And Tommy's going to talk about that in the second part of our conversation. Making small improvements to your sleep is one of the fastest and most impactful ways to improve your overall health and happiness. And that's why I'm excited to partner with Calm, the app designed to help you ease stress and get the best sleep of your life. 
And as we all know, when we sleep better, we feel better. And many of us can't resist looking at our phones last thing at night, even though we know it's probably not helping us sleep. And if that's you, you may prefer instead to listen to a whole library of programs on the Calm app designed for healthy sleep, like soundscapes, guided meditations, and over a hundred sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Stephen Fry, Kelly Rowland, and Laura Dern. Calm is also a great app for those of you who want to get into meditation. In fact, last week, on one afternoon, I was really struggling with fatigue and I jumped onto Calm to do a quick 10-minute meditation, which really, really energized me. Over 85 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds and get better sleep. And if you go to calm.com forward slash live more, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Get the Calm app and experience a transformation in the way that you sleep. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com forward slash live more. That's calm.com forward slash live more. That's a brain health. We were, we were t- touching on DHA. We were talking about ancestry. And just to sort of complete that then, mm-hmm. um, you're saying that DHA, the fat, is an important component for brain health in the womb when you're growing, but also throughout life? And if so, what are those sources and how can we think about taking practical steps on that? Yes, so particularly important um, in the womb, um, or potentially if you're born prematurely, which is a a group that I frequently uh, work with, then, you know, making sure they're getting that... um, during that during that lot during that period when they would have otherwise been in the womb and then throughout life as well and so the your fat tissue um is incredibly important and one of the reasons why it's incredibly important is because it acts as a store for dha so some people estimate that the average person has maybe 10 years worth of dha for their brain stored in their adipose tissue so that means in their fat tissue so that means that you don't need to have it every day. You don't need to be overly worried about how much you're taking in uh, because you have a buffer. Uh, that's one of the best ways to describe your fat tissue is an incredibly important buffer. And, But, you know, if you were to take in no DHA and you're somebody who isn't very good at converting it from plant-based sources or you're not getting plant-based sources because um, you eat a highly refined uh, modern diet, then, you know, there is you know, you're going to run out of that store uh, eventually. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of seafood, small fish. Um, you know, if we think about, you know, there is a risk of mercury contamination, some other things in, in larger, you know, uh, tuna and swordfish and other things. So sardines, um, partic- uh, particularly good uh, shellfish, oysters. Um, you can take, you know, there are, there are algal sources, uh, krill sources you can take um, as a, you know, as a supplement, like if um, if you're taking it as a supplement, you know, one or two grams a day is probably going to be enough for most people. Um, you know, if you're eating it from from seafood, you know, a portion once or twice a week is probably is probably going to be enough. So it's not a huge amount, um, but but longer term, I, I think it's definitely going to have an effect. Um, the other side of that, 
is uh, vegetable oils. And there's there's uh, if you exist in the nutrition space, there is a huge amount of controversy around around vegetable oils. Um, because some people will say if you replace saturated fat with vegetable oils, your cholesterol will be lower and that's going to lower your risk of heart disease. Other people will say the vegetable oils are incredibly um, inflammatory. They're easily oxidized. And then that can then cause issues, including heart disease. Um, and so I think there's a varied amount of evidence in both directions for those. And that's why it's complicated. Uh, but for the brain particularly, when we look at um, both the the data that we have from humans and it mainly comes from uh, uh, autopsies in, in children and from animal models including pigs which are very similar metabolically in terms of their gut and their brain to humans um, you see that if you have a large amount of linoleic acid which is an omega-6 largely found in vegetable oils in our diet if you have a large amount of that in the diet it seems to outcompete DHA getting into the brain so in you know if we're just thinking about simple heuristics not eating a lot of fried foods is probably going to be number one for a number of reasons but that's going to be one because those the that, that's that's makes up a significant portion of the the caloric intake of or caloric content of, of of fried foods and a lot of processed foods um and then just um you know, making sure that you're eating some kind of whole food sources of some some omega threes at the same time. So reducing reducing your intake. Um, you know, just just if you're eating whole foods and cooking them at home as much as you can. And again, there's a lot of privilege that's involved in being able to do that. There's not something we've talked we've talked about yet, but but you know that's that we have to remember that as well. But if you're reducing the intake of those vegetable oils. Um, again, just from sort of processed and fried foods, then I think most of the problem goes away. So you don't need to be like overly, um, overly worried or, um, you know, really hyper focused on that, you know, just just removing that component there. And then, you know, making sure you're getting some um, from from whole either seafood or, or plant based sources, that's probably going to be good enough, right? It doesn't re doesn't require anything harder than that. So you're saying that the, the we've got these omega threes, these DHAs, and we've got these omega sixes, which we were talking about, a lot of them come in the vegetable oils and in highly processed foods uh, and fried foods. And they're sort of competing. So one option is to increase omega-3s, but you're saying actually a really good option that will have multiple benefits is reduce how much processed food you're having, how many vegetable oils are in your diet, and actually automatically that's going to mean ratio-wise there's more omega-3 there and you're going to get all the knock-on benefits as well uh, beyond just vegetable oils uh, and, and sort of oxidized vegetable oils that you that you get from whole food diets is that is that effectively what you what you're saying there Tommy yeah exactly and and you know depending on the nutrition camp that you're in uh, people get very hyper focused on a on a specific a specific intake a specific ratio you know, they start looking at the omega-6 and omega-3 contents of all their foods and trying to increase, you know, decrease one and increase another to, to improve the ratio. I don't think that anybody really needs to do that. I think if we just focus on reducing the most significant contributors, which have a number of potential negative health effects, which are processed and, and, and fried foods, um, and then we are just getting some whole food-based sources, you know, if it's fish once a week or you know, chia seeds in your in your in your morning porridge or something, which is a good plant source of, of ALA, which is a precursor to DHA. You know, just 
just by doing that um, is probably gonna gonna get you most of the benefit. When we do talk about vegetable oils, is it the vegetable oils per se, or is it how they're cooked and if they're fried and if they're heated? I think both is actually important. So the linoleic acid, the, this main omega-6 in, in, in vegetable oils, in its native state seems to some, and I don't think we necessarily understand exactly how or why, but it seems to compete with DHA getting into the brain. Um, and so, you know, and if you have a huge amount of, of that as forming part of this, the fat content of the diet, then you seem, you seem to see less DHA in the brain. Um, and that's regardless of how that oil comes. Um, but equally, there's also some, some increasing literature on the breakdown products, um, where it's become oxidized, you know, which, which happens with high heat, repeated heating cycles. So if you think about the, the, uh, the fryer at McDonald's, it's, you know, goes through multiple cycles on and off being heated and cooled, heated and cooled. And that's something that definitely increases the oxidation of the oil. Um, and, and that seems to have a negative effect on brain health as well. I mean, there's some data in humans and then also in, in animal models. So I think, um, I think it's a bit, I think it's a bit of both, yeah. uh, really. Um, however, I, I don't think we should be demonizing these things and just saying they're definitely bad. They shouldn't be in the diet. So, you know, when we talk about vegetable oils, what are we, what are we talking about? Um, so I'm talking, you know, sunflower oil, um, refined rapeseed oil, uh, which again is uh, soybean oil. These are very, you know, these are the ones used in commercial fryers in, um, you know, fast food restaurants. Um, Sunflower oil, not as bad, actually, because it has a lower linoleic acid content. It's more monounsaturated fats, more like olive oil. So, again, olive oil, uh, a very good option. Um, coconut oil, avocado oil, butter, um, tallow. If you're a carnivore, you can use your, the rendered fat from your cow. Um, so, and when you're cooking with these in normal amounts at home, I don't really think it's worth it's worth worrying about. Obviously, if you're deep deep fat frying at home, the same applies. But if it's just in a pan to saute some vegetables or, you know, cook a bit of chicken or something, I'm much less worried about that. You know, what, you know I think, again, if we think about the the big rocks that you want to move, if you can, if you're using a bit of sunflower oil at home to cook yourself a stir fry, um, rather than getting a big portion of chips um, that was sort of, you know, the you know, the, the 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 total exposure and, and the nature of it is very very different. Um, so so again, if you can bring it back to cooking whole foods at home, you're able to do that. You have the, the facilities and the resources to do that. Then I then I, I I think a lot of the problem goes away. There's talk that these oxidized fats can stick around in our body for a long period of time, um, and is that something? You know, that we should be thinking about. So, you know, a lot of people like some fries, for example, which of course is likely to have been cooked in um, multiply reheated vegetable oils, which presumably will be super oxidized and, and drive inflammation in the body, I would imagine. Um, crisps are a very common snack here in the UK. I think even people who uh, like to follow whole food diets find it really hard to resist, you know, fries and crisps. Uh, and those things, have, of course, are highly processed. And just in terms of, you know, one thing I love about your approach and why I think I resonate with it so much is because it's 
there, there's real balance there. There's there's real sort of, it's not about extremes necessarily. It's about saying, look, here are the big levers to turn. Don't worry about these small things if you're turning those big ones. And I just wonder when it comes to things like fries and crisps, you know, that oxidized fat can stick around, I think, in the body for quite some time. So it's not about demonizing it necessarily, but just helping people understand why they may not be the best choices, certainly in high amounts. Hmm. I don't want to be too prescriptive, but I think we need to talk about these things. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a very important question. And I think the, the natural tendency is for people to basically say, they're terrible for your health, you should never eat them. Um, and there's really no evidence to support that idea. Although, like mechanistically, like you say, biochemically, yes, these things can hang around for a long time. Um, but the one of the most important aspects of, of all of this to me is to control the things that you can control. And then the ones that you can't control, or you're not willing to control for whatever reason, are things that you shouldn't worry about right um and because i think that the process of worrying about it is worse than the process of doing the thing itself right so if you have a bag of chips once a month because it's your treat on a friday night um i would much rather you do that and enjoy it and it's you know part of your overall you know health and well-being than worry about what the fat that's on those chips is going to do in your body like i would really hope that you never that you don't do that because the the effect of worrying is probably going to be more significant than the effect of the fat on the chips. So it's very much about just thinking about, you know, what am I trying to achieve? What can I meaningfully control that doesn't have a negative effect, right? Because if, if you feel like you're being restricted because you can't have your monthly Friday night chips, that's going to have a negative effect on your physiology. And, and, and people who... You know, who feel more um, restricted dietarily then have some knock-on effects like they have higher uh, stress hormone levels and, and things like that. Like it has an effect on your physiology. So to the extent that you can and are willing to change something, do that. That's great. Um, it's going to have, you know, it's definitely going to have an effect on your health. But when you get to a point where it feels restrictive long-term, A, it's not going to be sustainable and B, it's going to have a negative effect on you. So, so yes, I think that people should minimize their intake of vegetable oils and fried and processed foods. I still eat those things. And it's a big part of, you know, occasionally. And it's a, a, a big part where it's important to me to, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to enjoy it and then yeah. not feel guilty about it because the guilt is going to be worse than the food itself. You know, that guilt and feeling bad about something is is actually a lot more toxic than people really think. And there's actually really good research. Kristen Neff um, has done a lot of research on self-compassion for 20 years, which I've only been coming across in the last few months. And it, it's really, really fascinating. And it really echoes my own clinical experience, which is deprivation and restriction works for a period of time. But if you still feel as though you're being deprived and restricted, you can get all kinds of toxic knock-on behaviors on the back of it you feel bad you know as you say if you're gonna have those chips with your friends if you're gonna do it enjoy it and understand that hey you know what i'm doing this because i'm with my buddies and i'm hanging out and, uh, and it reminds us of university or whatever it is 
be in that because otherwise the next morning you wake up, you're like, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm a failure. I can't stick to anything. You drink more wine that evening to compensate for that, for that, for that feeling. And it's a knock-on effect. And again, this doesn't get spoken about enough, I don't think, in the health and wellness space. It's all very well giving a prescription for healthy living. But how we deliver that prescription, how that prescription is communicated is so, so important. But I just don't think it's given enough credit. Yeah, this is, uh, and, and I particularly got interested in this when thinking about, we, we talked about genetics briefly, the way we talk about our genetics and our health. And we always talk about it from like using this negative language, right? Either you're normal or you have some kind of genetic risk factor or deficit or this gene isn't working properly. You know, if you, if you listen to people who talk about genetics and health, that's the language that they use. And so automatically, you're creating this negative association with something that's inherent to you and it has a negative effect on your physiology so they've done experiments where they had people do a treadmill test right how far can you run in 30 minutes then they did a genetic test and they they told them based on your genetics you we would expect you to be you know either you have a, a good aerobic performance gene or you have a bad aerobic performance gene then they redid the test those who were told that they had a good performance gene did exactly the same. Those who were told they had a bad performance gene did worse on average, right? They've been told they have a bad gene for, for aerobic performance, and they actually got worse on a treadmill test. Now, the thing is that they randomized people to whether, that was at, whether what they told them was true or not. So the effect was not in the genes. The effect was in being told whether you had the gene or not, which actually was not true. So being told something negative about your physiology, about something that's inherent to you, has a negative effect on your health or your performance. And this is how we talk about things. This is how we talk about vegetable oils. This is how we talk yeah. about genetics. This is how we talk about carbohydrates or protein or meat. And what it creates is that like, everything becomes this, well, what's the negative effect this is going to have on me? It's never what's the beneficial, what, like, what's the benefit? Like, what are, the, what are the great things that are happening to me right now because of this? Um, and we know, you know, Ellen Langer has done some incredible work on the effects of the mind on physiology, uh, blood sugar control, weight, like body weight. Um, and, you know, we just don't give that enough credit. So the way that health experts talk about these things, you're automatically creating this, this sort of feeling of negativity around pretty much anything um, in the people who are listening. And that's having a bigger effect, I believe, on, on the physiology than actually whatever the advice is. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point, Tommy. There's so many aspects of that to think about. There's how we communicate health messaging. So we always feel that we're slightly inadequate in some way that oh, I need mm. to optimize. I need to, oh, I wasn't born with that gene. Oh, but my best mate, oh man, I've got to do something to compensate for my inadequacy. But that sort of mindset it sort of goes beyond that as well, doesn't it? That not feeling good enough in ourselves, that insecurity that many of us have. You know, I remember I, I didn't um, sort of go down that route at the time. I remember you saying that in your earlier days, you used to go on these quite brutal endurance, um, you know, you'd really, really push yourself. And you sort of laughed it off at the end of a sentence. There was a bit of self-loathing there. And I, and I, I, I really noticed that at the time because 
I know myself, one of the reasons I feel I can approach the marathon this year with a real calm is because I'm not trying to prove myself to anyone. I'm comfortable with who I am. I've done a ton of therapy over the last seven, eight years, and I feel I like the person that looks back at me in the mirror now, whether I run a marathon or not, whether I finish it or I fall after seven miles and, and I'm injured, that doesn't change how I feel about myself. My kids still love me. My wife still loves me. I still love me. And I know my own behaviors in the past were driven from a place of not feeling good enough. So I would define myself. My identity was made up around, oh, if you do that, you know, yeah, you're a success. You're, you, you are someone. And letting go of that has just given me more freedom in my personal life, but also with my health, I feel. And I don't know, you know, how would you think about that self-loathing you spoke about before? And how do you think that's impacted your journey throughout health? Yeah, I think um, most of my health journey actually started with that. Um, I was bullied a lot as a kid. Um, I was a bit overweight, didn't really like sport, um, didn't really have very many friends. I was absolutely the nerd who wanted the extra tests was trying to do very well at school which doesn't often go well down well with your peers and when I was 18 that essentially manifested itself in a hyper focus on my uh how I looked physically uh because I was dumped just before my A-levels. And I channeled all of that into the, into the gym, um, which is the first time I'd ever really done any significant exercise. Um, and you know, like when you're 18 years old, you're like, well, if I get a six pack, maybe she'll love me again and she'll take me back, right? Um, and this is, I think this is where, you know, where a lot of teenage males may end up going. And obviously not at all helped by um you know men's health and men's fitness magazines which i read obsessively yeah, me too um and i remember and, and i was also very hyper focused on like everything that went into my mouth um like the it had to be very high quality it had to be completely unprocessed i had to have cooked it myself i had to know all the ingredients this is sort of i guess like 18 19 mainly in my my gap year before university was when it was probably at its worst and i remember when i when i then got to university <laughs> somebody as a joke posted underneath my uh my dorm room door uh a thing about orthorexia which i mean this is in 2000 and 2003 right i don't think anybody had heard of orthorexia yeah. then right and like that was really when i was at my lowest like i was training 20 plus hours a week i wasn't really eating very much i look at pictures back of me like of me back then i'm just I'm gaunt. Actually, I went to see my grandmother one summer, and she 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 used that word. It was Icelandic, but she basically told me that I was gaunt, um, and I, I didn't see it. Um, but like slowly over time, as as I became um, accepted by my peers, as I started to feel like I had worth in other areas, um, as I like started to be like loved more by others and i started to love myself and understand myself a lot of this stuff disappeared but it's in the background all the time like i still think too much about what i eat and i still think too much about the exercise that i do but it's sort of just like a little grumble that's in the back of my mind it's not negatively affecting my health in the way that it used to um 
But it, like that journey took 15 years, maybe. But because of that, it allows me to see it in others, empathize with it in others, you know, really understand why these things exist, how common it is. Um, and then also, you know, inform some of my approach uh, to, to how we might think about health and nutrition and stuff. But it's so, so basically that, that journey, which has sort of underlied all of my education and, and uh, professional experiences has kind of kind of been on, ongoing and has, has really sort of laid, laid the foundation of it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Tommy. Uh, super poignant to hear that and certainly helps us understand some of your passion for health messaging and the way we can and should deliver that messaging. Um, yeah, I mean, I think emotional health is so, so important, isn't it? I mean, is there much research on emotional health and brain health? I certainly know there is re regard to overall health and well-being and our satisfaction, but, but with respect to our brains, is there anything there that you're aware of? Well, they're essentially, they're very intimately connected. Um, and if you think about anxiety and depression, they, those who have diagnosed anxiety and depression have an increased risk of dementia. Those who have um, certain types of stress, you know, emotional stress, so particularly, um, they've looked at this in the workplace. If you have a job that has a high amount of stress, but you have very little control over that, um, that's then also so you know that obviously has a negative effect on your mental health at that t at the time, but also increases your your risk of cognitive decline. So, and 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 these things are intertwined, right? Is it is it simply the the psychological effect, or is it you know the the mind and the body are intimately connected, and we know that a lot of injury processes in the brain have a a peripheral component, which could you know be some kind of inflammation due to some other kind of disease process, which then negatively affects the brain. Um, and you know these things are in constant communication. So, so yeah, the things that affect our emotional well-being um, and our subjective um, stress levels absolutely um, then then have can can have an impact in terms of our long long-term brain health. Yeah, I mean we're all on a journey, aren't we, in our in our health, whether it's as health communicators or just to improve our own well-being. And you know, I certainly think of the way I've evolved my thinking is you know, yes, food, movement, sleep, stress, super important, of course. But I really feel these days that how we feel about ourselves, self-worth, that emotional health, I, I, I'm starting to think that that's actually more of a root cause because when that's sorted, you often don't need to chase around with food, movement, sleep, and stress because actually you, you don't actually compensate for that lack of self-worth by engaging in those other behaviors. So, I mean, that's currently where my head is at at the moment. Um, how do you think about that? I, I think, I mean, because of all the, the sort of the reasons we've gone over, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd completely agree with you. And the, the modern environment, you know, social media, how we interact with others now, I think feeds into this uh, you know, general negative self-worth. And, and again, you know, even those of us who are trying to help other people improve their health, we can absolutely make it worse. Uh, yeah. And and I'm sure, I'm sure we, we, we actively do that despite our best interests. And I actually, and, you know, I think most people are trying to help. They just don't realize the potential, you know, negative effects of that. Um, but again, I, I think these things are, 
are, are tightly connected. So if you put yourself in an environment that is supportive of your self-worth and your mental health, Yes, that's going to hopefully reduce these sort of negative behaviors that can have a negative effect. But I think the nature of that environment can also support uh, better habits or better processes in those areas. So, you know, if you're in a place that you're actively supporting your self-worth, you're probably going to sleep better. Um, and you're probably, you know, getting you know either making or you know sort of being exposed to better food choices and better better social connection and you're less subjectively stressed and i think if if the environment changes then many of these things are going to change and these things compound over time so we know that you know people who start to exercise more are more likely to change their diet they're more likely to stop smoking uh, they're more likely to sleep better um and these things sort of yeah. they're intimately connected um so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the environment that we're creating currently is probably having a, a, this huge effect on our, on our self-worth that is then negatively impacting all these other areas. And then it might be from person to person, a different area is the route in. You know, maybe it's a focus on sleep, which then improves mental health and self-worth, which improves, you know, the, your diet or your movement. Yeah, I, I think, it, I think it, there definitely is a different route in for different people you can enter that circle at any point and it can start mm. to feed all the all the other components to sort of close this off tommy there are two other areas i want to talk to you about in relation to brain health was sleep and connection now i'm super cautious uh given what we've just said that we don't stress anyone out as we talk about <laughs> a lack of sleep and brain health and a lack of connection in brain health so let's keep that at the top of our minds if we can which is always difficult but how did those two things potentially impact our our, our overall brain health so i think i mean sleep has become thankfully sleep has become sexy again, which I think is fabulous uh, because it really did used to be sort of like society said, sleep when you're dead, you know, get the work done. You know, it's, it's something that you can, you can, uh, you know, reduce and, you know, you'll just, don't worry about it, pay for it later. Um, and you really do pay for it pretty much right from the start. Um, so, so I'm, I'm really glad that people are starting to start to focus on sleep again. And, I also think, and this is something that I've learned from my friend, Dr. Greg Potter, who's my own personal expert in circadian biology, and we've published together and worked together on some projects. Um, and he'll tell you that actually, we don't sleep as badly as we're told we do. Um, and the majority of people probably sleep enough. But, you know, if you're not spending seven hours in bed, you know, all things being equal, you, you're probably going to be better off from a, a mental health standpoint, a long-term brain health and, and physical health standpoint, if you do get to spend seven to eight hours in bed and then you get to spend most of that uh, asleep. And you know, we look at both sleep quantity and sleep quality. Both of those are important for long-term risk of cognitive decline. Um, and though it's difficult to really unpick it, we probably can't pharmaceuticalize our way into that. So if you're taking um, sedatives, uh, in order to achieve that sleep, you're probably not going to be getting all of the benefits because the nature of that sleep isn't the same. So 
I don't think our sleep is necessarily as bad as we're told it is, but for the people who, you know, aren't sleeping well or long, you know, and it doesn't, you know, again, like seven to nine hours is probably the, the average that you might want. Um, you know, then I, I think there's definitely going to be some benefit to improving that if, if you know, you're able to, to spend that extra time in bed. There was one paper I think I saw you present once, Tommy, where um, decreased sleep, you know, yes, increases um, reactivity in the amygdala, the emotional part of the brain. But also, I think you shared something where it decreases empathy, which I found really interesting. Yeah, so so this was uh, those those things were actually from the 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 same paper looking at how we react to visual cues in other people's faces when we're sleep deprived or not, and when um, when we're sleep deprived and acutely, it's going to happen in one night of sleep. Um, and again, the the important thing that other studies have shown that is that one night of bad sleep does not have any meaningful negative effect on your health right so you know overall we're talking about these things compounding over time so if you if you sleep badly one night it's not something to worry about again you know it's just it, it's fine and you'll you'll survive just just fine it'll have no long-term negative effects but when people are sleep deprived you're less likely to be able to recognize um, a positive uh, emotion or change in somebody else's face you're less likely to be able to empathize with them and you're more likely to see something as negative. And again, so when you think about people sleep deprived um, in meetings, on Zoom calls, interacting with others, meeting new people, when you're sleep deprived, it's more likely to be a negative experience. Uh, and again, um, I think this stuff compounds over time. Uh, so this is one of, you know, if you want to be um, a well um well-rounded, socially connected, sociable human being, sleep is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, in, in that study, that was one of the reasons why, why that was found to be the case. Yeah. I think we all know that intuitively. I mean, going back to how do we feel, um, you know, we can, we can talk about sleep and, and ask yourself the question, you know, each morning, you know, how do I feel? Does that, was that enough? Do I feel refreshed? Do I need a little bit more tonight? Was that a little bit later than is best for me? Um, just finishing off there then, Tommy, on connection. And, you know, I guess some of the softer stuff or what we used to think was the softer stuff. I, I don't think I learned anything about the power of connection at medical school now, thinking about, thinking back. Maybe I did, maybe I've forgotten about it. Um, but just how important is connecting with others for our brain health? When you really boil it down, social connection, again, is, is essentially the sort of foundational aspect of us as a species, right? We are a collectivist species. Um, we benefit from being part of a social group from having a place in that social group, from having um, a purpose within that group, uh, which gives us meaning. Um, and having meaning is something that tells our body that it's worth being alive. Having meaning or not seems to have an effect on the immune system, has an effect on our physiology. Um, and so without social connection, you're essentially not giving that input, which is that you have purpose, you have meaning, you belong. And that is one of the critical inputs for the the brain to to keep working and one of the um one of sort of the the 
the downstream or threads that comes out of this uh, demand-driven theory of cognitive decline, which we talked about earlier, is the grandmother hypothesis. Um, and so the grandmother hypothesis states that, you know, rather than when you've procreated, you are essentially just a useless sack of meat, which is what some people will tell you about the evolutionary forces on our bodies, right? That you're just there to procreate. Once you've done, once you've done that, there are no more evolutionary forces that are, that are creating fitness, right? And so like most people will say that the, your genes are just there to make you live to 20 or 30 years old, procreate, and then what happens after that doesn't really matter. However, the grandmother hypothesis would state that if you are useful and healthy longer into life, then you are available to help support your progeny, their progeny, and to keep your, your tribe alive, right? So you are actually increasing the likelihood that your genes will be passed further into the future by being alive to be able to help the new parents or being able to look after the grandchildren. So actually, there are evolutionary forces that exist to keep us long and healthy for as long as possible. However, you get to a point where you are no longer of use to the group. And then that's probably going to be a trigger for some kind of decline. Because as soon as you're no longer of benefit, you know, if we think about this from an evolutionary perspective, we think about, um, you know, hunter gatherers, you know, early humans, as soon as you're no longer of benefit, you are, de you are a detriment to your tribe, to your group. You're going to take up resources. Uh, people are going to have to care for you, um, which is which they can't really afford to do. So that could trigger this period of decline. You know, you think about uh, wolves or dogs leaving the pack when they're old, so they can go and die peacefully in the wilderness. And humans used to do that in some uh, groups as well. So we are only giving ourselves the input that says, you know, you're worth being here. You're worth having some kind of function because you're part of a group and because you have purpose. And without social connection, it's almost impossible to have any kind of significant purpose because you don't know that you have purpose because you're not contributing to a to a some kind of goal or group that's greater than yourself. So I think that, you know, we've kind of bounced back from the philosophical to the physiological, but to you know, at some level, for us to survive and be healthy and functional requires some kind of social input that says you have meaning you belong you have purpose um, and so that's going to be critical to physical health mental health um, cognitive function uh, and that requires social connection it requires other people to help you see and learn that um, and so without that social connection i think that is probably a, a significant trigger for decline in health and decline in cognitive function yeah thanks for sharing that tommy super powerful and you know i was thinking about my elderly mother as you were saying that and the the, the message keeps was coming through to me that you've got to give your brain a reason to think that you need to be alive you have value and uh mm. i think we can all think about that for ourselves and for the people around us Tommy, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. We've gone into all kinds of different areas. There's a there's so much we didn't touch upon as well, uh, which no doubt we'll do at some point in the future. Tommy, I always love to leave the listeners and the viewers on YouTube with some 
practical tips. So the podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of life. You have worked with uh, neonates. You've worked with people trying to lose weight. You've worked with Formula One drivers, with athletes, with all that experience. What are some of your top practical tips for people to improve the way that they feel? I think when you go across all of those different groups, what I've seen again and again is that the things that are required for optimal performance um, are the same as the things that are required for optimal physical health, the same as the things that are required for optimal cognitive health and cognitive function. And those are the, the things that we've talked about. Um, so they are you know, sleep, diet, nutrition, social connection. And what I think, it, you know, there are two things that are really important um, to remember from, from like my perspective. One is that to improve any of those things requires much less um, physical effort than we are often told, right? Or that we tell ourselves um, in terms of the amount of uh, the amount that we need to change our diet or restrict our diet or the amount that we need to exercise. Um, and even just small, you know, small changes, a brisk walk three times a week can have huge knock-on effects on our brain and our, on our bodies. And so that's one thing. It doesn't take much to have a really big, uh, big effect. And the other thing is, is to remember that we are incredibly strong and resilient as individuals, but that does require a group. It does require a collective um, because that's where we, where we derive our meaning and purpose, which where a lot of this comes from. So, you know, remember that it doesn't take much to improve any of those areas, which will then have knock-on effects in other areas. And then also remember that you are an incredibly strong, resilient human being with significant purpose and meaning. You are loved and you, you have a place. Uh, and because of that, you have incredible strength. And if you remember that, then all this negative messaging that could come from a lot of it's internal, but a lot of it comes from, you know, external social media, all that kind of stuff. Then you can sort of leave some of that by the wayside and just remember like how little it takes to improve and, and how strong and resilient you really are. Yeah. Brilliant way to finish. Great advice there, Tommy. At the end, I just want to publicly acknowledge you, Tommy. I think what you're doing is great. I love the information you put out. I love the way you do it. You're someone who I, I regard as inspirational, very influential. And um, thanks for joining me today. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's a, a real pleasure. And um, yeah, you're one of very few people in in this arena that, that I really respect and look up to as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that. Cheers, Tommy. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away from the conversation and start applying into your own life. Remember, small changes really do make a big difference. And of course, please do consider sharing this episode with others who you feel may benefit. If I want to take a pause right now and send this episode to a friend or a colleague with a personal note, this is a really thoughtful thing to do for someone else. And honestly, it's going to have benefits for you both. It serves as an act of kindness, which we know benefits the giver as well as the receiver. And as I mentioned in the introduction, 
Tommy is someone who I really, really respect. In fact, when I was writing my latest book, Feel Great, Lose Weight, it was Tommy who I approached to proofread the manuscripts and give feedback. He made some really insightful comments and made suggestions which really helped to improve the final version. The book is about how we can make simple, sustainable changes that can have a huge impact on our health and well-being. And although the book's written around the topic of weight loss, the truth is that the themes in the book are universal and will help any one of us understand why we have certain behaviors and what we can do to change them. The book comes out this week in the USA and Canada as a paperback, as an ebook, but also as an audiobook, which I am narrating. So if that appeals to you, you can check out all the links to this book as well as my previous ones on the show notes page on my website. Now, before we finish, I just want to let you know about Friday Five. It's my brand new weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity. It could be a practical tip for your health, a book, an article, or a video that I found inspiring, a quote that's caused me to stop and reflect, basically anything that I feel would be helpful and uplifting. I'm so glad I started doing this. The feedback has been simply wonderful. Many of you tell me it's a wonderful way to finish off your week and get you set for the weekends. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. A big thank you to my wife for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. Have a wonderful week and please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on so you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. And remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more.